welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, why not check out our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Good morning, everyone. My name's John, and uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm the worship pastor here, so I have authority to address microphones, um, but I'm also a site pastor for our evening service as well. And if you, um, if you ha- have a heart for people um, joining Birmingham, I'm just going to do a, creaky, uh, a, a quick sneaky notice. For On Thursday, there's a, a prayer evening for students gathering in Birmingham, but the prayer, the prayer is open for everybody. We'd love to invite you to come in and pray for those students who are coming to Birmingham. So today as we start, um, we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians. So if you've got your Bible with you, now is the prime Russell opportunity um, to dig it out of the bottom of your bag. We're going to be in chapter 2. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, um, let us know, and we'd love to get you, help you download one or get one, get one in paper, give it to you. Um, so 1 Thessalonians is towards the end of the New Testament, uh, the first Funnily enough, of a, of a row of five books that all begin with T. That's a bit of trivia for you there. It's also potentially, uh, it's the first of Paul's letters, but it's potentially one of the earliest writings in the New Testament as well, which is really interesting when we come to read it. So as I said, we're going to be looking at chapter two. But just before we get there, have you ever had an email that says, like, free iPhone if you only just click this link, or free holiday? Have you seen those things? What do you think when you receive one of those? Yeah, it's spam, Yeah. You might think it's too good to be true, right? So that was the same type of mindset that the ancient world had too. They were used to pe- like traveling teachers and preachers, traveling through the ancient world, trying to pull off schemes and tricks that would get them like money or power or sex or fame. And so people had, to become, people had become skeptical of everybody who traveled through their cities. The Apostle Paul and his friend Silas were also trying to travel through cities, but they were doing it to preach the gospel, telling people about Jesus. In the book of Acts, in chapter 17, we read about his visit to Philippi, where he was forced out by the authorities. You might know that story. Um, And then he went on to Thessalonica, which I'll probably say wrong today. Um, He went on to Thessalonica, where he stayed for just three weeks. It says three Sabbaths before Jews and Romans reacted to his teaching by literally kicking him out of the city. And hopefully there won't be such a reaction to my preaching this morning. In fact, there was such a dislike of Paul that Jews from Thessalonica then went 45 miles to another city called Berea to abuse him there as well. That is some very impassioned hate. But in those three weeks in Thessalonica, many people had come to faith in Jesus and a church had started. 1 Thessalonians is, is Paul's letter back to that church in Thessalonica to encourage them, to champion them, uh, and inspire them. And since Paul left, it's, it's, it's likely we get from the context of this letter that, that his opponents were spreading rumors against him, trying to discredit him and, and pass him off as just another traveling teacher trying to make some money or rip people off. Paul starts chapter 2, which we're going to read today, explaining that his message was not too good to be true. So let's read together chapter 2, starting from verse 1. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his, his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God 
who tests our hearts. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked day or night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are our witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who called you into his kingdom and glory. Paul knew that if his motives were questioned, people would doubt his message. Therefore, he makes his defense. And what does he mention? Some of the things we can pull out of here. He says, the appeal does not come from error, i.e. the message is correct. It doesn't come from impure motives, things like pride, ambition, popularity, power. Nor, he says, we're trying to trick you, like someone using dishonest scales. He says they never used flattery, nor are they putting on a mask to cover up greed, like one of those schemes that encourages you to try this product free of charge, and then after two orders, you actually have to pay for it. Neither did he place a burden on them, but paid his own way by working hard. And in all of these, Paul's main point is that he wasn't motivated by trying to please people or what, or what, what, what people would think about him. Now, this is the one that challenges me the most. In fact, I sat down to prepare this preach, and, um, and before I'd even actually sat down to read the passage, I was just sort of prayerfully reflecting, and I was like, Jesus, I think I just need to care less what other people think about me and be worried less about what other people think about me and not be motivated by what I might get from people, but instead work for your ends only. And then I opened up this passage and read, we were not looking for praise from people. And God, you know, God's got a great sense of humor. I'm definitely on a learning journey with that one. Paul insists that his message was true, his motives were pure, and his methods were above board. And he uses the Thessalonians' memory of him as a witness, like in a courtroom. He says in verse 2, as you know. And again in verse 5, he says, you know. And again in verse 9 and 10, surely you remember, you are our witnesses. He even appeals, God is our witness. He's appealing to them as witnesses. So as we think about the motivations in our own lives, what false motives might we have? Maybe we want to seem important or significant. Maybe we want to come across as powerful or knowledgeable. Maybe we want to gain something from someone else, money or status or something else. Maybe you're like me, a people pleaser, and don't want to be too countercultural due to fear of what other people will think of us. Let me ask you, do, do you, and I know that I do, but do you have any unhealthy motives in your life? If we were in Paul's position, would we be able to appeal to our friends about the purity of our motives? Would they be able to vouch for us? It's worth reflecting on, isn't it? I think that Paul's greatest defense is actually in verse 2. I don't know if you spotted it as we went through, but that is suffering. Paul reminds the Thessalonians that, he, that they knew how he had, he had suffered in Philippi for preaching the gospel but points out that that didn't stop him from preaching 
in Thessalonica. Surely if the message was false or the motives were wrong, they would have abandoned their teaching and just said, oh, you know, we're not going to do that again. That was too difficult to endure. And that leads us on to our second point. Is it too bad to be true? Not only was Paul mistreated in Thessalonica, but the church were too. And read about this. They were, they were trying to start a church in a city with great allegiance to Roman culture, Roman gods, Roman rules, which the Romans didn't take very kindly to. You could replace the word Roman with Western, and we'd probably be in a similar situation now. We're trying to build a, Western, a church in a culture with great allegiance to Western culture, to Western gods, to Western rulers. Not to mention that they were also being persecuted by the Jews too. And some of, them, some of the church in Thessalonica were starting to think, is there something wrong with my beliefs? Have I, got, have I been misinformed? This can't be right. It's too bad to be true. But now in his letter to them, Paul wants to encourage the Thessalonians that suffering is not a symptom, that they are off God's plans for their lives, or that there is something wrong with them, or that the gospel isn't true. He's saying that isn't the case. Rather, Paul encourages them that suffering is a reality that comes hand in hand with faith in Jesus. Let's read, let's read again from our passage, chapter 2, verse 14 to 16. <clears throat> for you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things that those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. When we become Christians, God doesn't just promise that we'll never suffer again. Who's like, amen to that one. But instead he promises, what does he say? What does Jesus say? In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Suffering is a reality of the Christian life. And, you know, sometimes we suffer for, uh, as a result of our own poor, dis poor decisions. We get ourselves into sticky situations and it can be, yeah, exactly. There, there, there can be times where we're like, oh man, I've just got myself into a bit of a tiz here. But at other times, we suffer because of external factors. Paul is, in, is encouraging the Thessalonians that in this case, their suffering is not a sign that they failed. Rather, he's demonstrating that when we suffer, we share in that experience with Jesus. Jesus himself, who suffered on the cross, suffered at the hands of the authorities, was beaten and bruised and mocked for our benefit. We also share in the suffering with Paul, who was beaten, thrown in prison, humiliated, stoned, shipwrecked. You can read a big old list in 1 Corinthians. We also share that in that suffering with God's church throughout history. Paul refers to the church in Judea, like we just read. But, you know, throughout the whole world, the whole globe, and throughout all of time, there have and is and will be people who are persecuted because of their faith. You know, I, I did a bit of quick research. A recent study found that more than 340 million Christians were living in countries where they might suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination because of their faith. 340 million Christians in places where they are persecuted. Isn't that crazy? It is so important, isn't it, to pray for our brothers and sisters in other countries who, are, who, who experience such awful persecution, even, even to the point of being killed for their faith. 
And if you, wanna, if you want some more resources for this or prayer points, you can go to opendoorsuk.org. There's a bunch of other organizations as well, and they've got some really helpful resources about how we can support for those guys. But let's not forget them, hey? They're in the midst of a really difficult struggle. In this country, we might not experience currently such levels of persecution, but we all experience suffering as a result of the world around us, the systems and structures of our fallen world, and the enemy who comes against us to steal and kill and destroy. And some of you are even in that place today. When we're in that place of suffering, we can take heart, though, that we are joining in the suffering of Jesus and his church throughout history. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us. We have a high priest who's been through it all. He knows what it's like. You are not alone. Jesus knows your pain, and he will give you his spirit to strengthen you. If you're experiencing struggle today, talk to Jesus about it, bring it to him, share, share your burden with him, and reach out to your small group, those around you, and bear that burden with others. So we've looked at how Paul demonstrated that his message was not false. His message was not too good to be true. We've also seen how suffering does not mean that our current situation means that the gospel is too bad, or that our current situation isn't too bad to be true. The final thing that I want to draw from this passage is that we have been trusted with truth. So has anyone ever given you anything to take care of? Maybe a friend asked you to take care of their dog while they went on holiday, or maybe you took home the, uh, the, the pet hamster in primary school. Did anyone else? Was that just me? Um, or maybe, uh, maybe someone's given you their, 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 their perfect house plant, which they love so much, and they'd really love for it not to die while they're on holiday. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Just turn in just twos and threes. Has anyone asked you to take care of something? And how did that feel for you? Turn in twos and threes. So what was that experience like for you? When, you, when, when someone gave you that thing, what, what was that experience like? Anyone? Anyone? Pressure. Pressure, yeah? Yeah, pressure. Responsibility, absolutely. You know, yeah, you feel this sense of responsibility, don't you? Because you know that this person cares so deeply about their yucca plant. I don't know if that's even... That is a plant, right? Yeah, great. And, um, and they care so deeply and they really don't want it to die and they've given it to you and you say, please don't kill it. <laughs> they've entrusted that with you, haven't they? And you feel this pressure to steward it well. Paul uses this, uh, this sense in verse 4 when he says, we speak of those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. God has entrusted his gospel to, to his people, just like, just that, like that person with their yucca plant entrusting it to you. God has entrusted his kingdom and his truth and his gospel to us. It's our job to steward it well and to spread it well. Jesus himself sends us out to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, not only does Jesus command us to, but we also want to tell people about him because we know the difference he has made in our lives. And we want everyone in the world to experience that same sense of love and hope and acceptance and forgiveness and belonging and significance and purpose that are found in a relationship with Jesus. In verse 8, Paul says, we loved you, Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. We are motivated by love for those around us. 
It's as if we feel God's love for those people and that love should motivate us to tell them the gospel regardless of what will come our way. Suffering, persecution, poverty, people thinking we're absolutely bonkers and that love drives us on toward our goal of telling people from all nations that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus loves them. God's heart breaks for those who are lost and estranged from him and he wants our hearts to break for them too. Break our hearts, Lord. Break our hearts to action. You know, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see brokenness around our world. You know, we go out all around us and we see evil and, and darkness. You know, just this week, in fact, I was out for a walk with, my, with Bethany and my little one and we saw two guys, you know, fully, full, fully black clothing with a like, um, balaclava on, clutching at their pockets, sprinting from the city centre, it's quite obvious what they probably did. And then yesterday, I was, um, at, at, again, with my wife and my baby. I don't know how this happens. Um, but at the Edgebaston Reservoir, and there was a group of young, young guys who were just being, like, shout, like, shouted racist abuse at. And then it turned out that one of them then went and assaulted this guy. And I was there, and you're just like, wow, how on earth are we going to change this world? Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the only way. And he's entrusted us with that gospel. And so, you know, whether you're, obviously we can go out and be Jesus' hands and feet to people. We can speak to them in the streets. But also, what about in your businesses? How can you create kingdom places of business that show Jesus to the world? And how about if you're a teacher in schools? How can you teach, your, teach the kids that you're responsible for the love of Jesus and his kingdom principles? Who can you tell the truth to and how do we do it? In this passage, Paul unpacks his conduct to the Thessalonians, which was so successful in demonstrating the gospel. He says that he treated them gently, like a mother. He taught them like a father. He shared his life with them. And he lived holy, righteous, and blameless among them. All these are key points for us to follow as we look at how we can share the gospel with those around us. Firstly, we need to be gentle. You know, shoving truth down somebody's throat is not an effective way to help them to come to faith. People have different, different beliefs and it takes us different amount of times to mold our beliefs and change our beliefs and process. We must be gentle and caring, Paul says, like a mother. Help them in their process by gently revealing God's truth to them. Secondly, we need to teach people. When our friends ask us, oh, what, what is, how does that whole kingdom thing work? Or what did Jesus say about this? It's our responsibility to be able to tell them. You know, we, sometimes you might not know the answer. And if that's the case, say, hey, you know what? That's a great question. I'm going to go away, read it up, and I'll come back to you with my thoughts. We, we, we need to teach people and come back to them with an answer. Thirdly, we need to share our lives with them. What did Paul say? He didn't say, Oh, sorry, what did Jesus say? He didn't say, go and make converts of all nations, did he? He didn't just say, go and convert people. He said, go and make disciples, people who follow Jesus in every step and become more like him every day. Like Paul, we delight to share with them, share with them not only the gospel of God, <coughs> but our lives as well. And lastly, we need to live 
A holy, righteous, and blameless life as an example to them. Living right with God, right in our relationships, and right in what we do. And by living right, we demonstrate the difference that Jesus has made to us. We're not just doing what the rest of the world does. We are unique. We're set apart. And we can demonstrate that by, be, by doing and acting right. There's a famous quote, which I thought was very interesting, that says, Be careful how you live. You may be the only Bible that someone ever reads. Be careful how you live. You might be the only Bible that someone ever reads. Fortunately, that sounds like quite a daunting task, but fortunately we have the power of the Holy Spirit working in us to help us. But it does require our participation and right choices. God has entrusted you with his truth. God has entrusted me with his truth. What a gift, you might say. If you're anything like me, you might think, God, are you sure? (laughs) Are you sure you want to entrust this to me? Am I really the right person to do this? And yet in his gentleness, he affirms us. We are his plan for spreading truth, his gospel on the earth. There's not a plan B. Well, there might be. I haven't talked to God about that. But (laughs) there might be a plan B. But we are plan A. He's given us that responsibility and he's entrusted that to us. So as we close, let me ask you this. Where has God put you? Is it in a workplace? Is it in a community? Is it in a friendship group? Is it on a bus, the number 47, every day? Where has God put you? And where has he entrusted you to speak his truth? Who is around you that he's inviting you to speak truth to? I'd love us to stand as we finish and we can pray together and invite the Holy Spirit. Let's just stand. And we're not going to just manufacture anything. We're not going to hype it up. We just want to ask the Holy Spirit, what are you inviting me to? We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. Why not come along and visit us? We gather at three services across two sites on a Sunday and meet during the week in small groups across the city. More information on both of these can be found on our website. Thanks for listening and God bless.